Good morning. It's good to see everyone. Um, Christmas season. There's something about Christmas that's uh, that's um, extra fascinating to me. Um, and maybe it is to you, but if you think about it, it's it's an odd thing in terms of the the secular you know Christmas that the world celebrates. For a few months, a massive change takes place over the whole world. You walk into malls and into shopping centers and to stores, and something has changed, right? Decorations are different. Music is different. Uh, how they've uh, organized and displayed everything is different. Universities go through changes. Homes go through changes. Boulevards, right? Town centers. Something massive takes place all over the world, right? It's completely different. You go to our city center, and all of a sudden there's these booths everywhere, there's lights everywhere, and there's all these things, and, and then it's gone. It's just a few months, and there's this massive uh, change, and then it's gone. And, and I think maybe that's why we, we like it. There's a period of time where we're, we're, there's something different. We're kind of taken out of the norm. Uh, even though we know what's coming, it's familiar, but it's different than the normal ho-hum of things. And so we we, uh, many people, most people enjoy those changes, enjoy, they get into them, and they get into the festivities, and I don't know about you, but our family had one particular change we'd love to be part of every year back in the States, and that was we would drive down to Los Angeles where a certain church, this particular church, went through a massive change. Every year they put on what they called the Bethlehem Experience, and I'm telling you, it's unlike anything you have ever seen. It was a massive church, a huge campus. It was built into the hills, so you have all these walkways that take you to different parts of the campus. It's massive. It's like a university campus, really. And they convert an entire area of the campus into first century Bethlehem. They, build, they get set builders. They build sets. They have an entire village market. And they have everyone in costume period dress. And they're making the breads of the time. They're serving the fruits of the time. I loved going there to get the pomegranate. And they give you money on the way in. It's a fake money. They're these little, like, you know, uh, things. But they go, go spend it in the market. And you would go down there, and the kids would love this. You got this fake money. You could go to the merchants, and you could buy fresh baked bread. Or you might go try some raw fish. Or you might get a, a pomegranate. You could roam around through all the markets. They also then had, of course, the long line of people was waiting to get into the manger and see baby Jesus with Mary and Joseph. And they had a few lines. There's always a young couple in there, and they'd say a few lines, and they'd let about 20 people into a room, and it's all cozy and dark, and it's lit up, and they'd say their few lines, and you'd go out. And, and they have Roman soldiers roaming around. Roman soldiers with full gear. Yes. My kid's highlight was to get arrested by the Roman soldiers. Every boy, every boy's dream. Which didn't take much for them to, to arrest you and throw you in jail for the night. Uh, just an amazing thing. This church went through a massive change. I can't even think about the manpower alone it would take. They had hundreds of volunteers every night to be in those different markets. On the way out, they'd serve hot cocoa, and it was just an amazing, amazing thing. I really missed that. But my favorite part of the Bethlehem experience is about every 10 or 15 minutes or so, the lights that lit up the whole area would go dark. And on this mountainside, seemingly rising out of the ground, all of a sudden there's all these angelic forms they usually used the children in the church. They, they had smoke machines. They would smoke the hillside, and all these brilliant lights would flood. 
And they would do this amazing glory to God in the highest song that was recorded with all this music coming out. It was unbelievable. It would give you chills. I'm getting chills now talking about it. My favorite part, the lights would go down, go, oh, the angels, the angels. And everyone's like, oh, yeah. And everyone stops what they're doing. Even the Roman soldiers stop what they're doing. They stop beating the kid for a minute. Oh, this. <laughs> my favorite part. And I think my favorite part of the Christmas changes has to be the music. And not just all the holiday music we hear and all the secular songs that are incorporated, but I love what we've just sung. I love the Christmas carols. I love the theology that is packed within those. Did you hear what you sang about? Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. I mean, amazing things we're singing about. It's, it, it blows uh, the mind. Joy to the world, right? Far as the curse is found. Interesting, that song's not really a Christmas song. It's really about the second coming of Jesus. But we sing it appropriately because we hail the king. It's incredible, and I love the songs. And in our passage today, we're going to be in Luke chapter 2. We have a song. We have a song from the angels. The angels come to earth to give us a, a, a choir performance. Now, it's not often that that happens in scripture. You have to note that. When you read through the Old Testament, you have lots of visits from the angel of the Lord in various, you know, different visitations. But rarely do you really see an angel popping up and saying, and now... I'm going to hit you with this one, you know, and they get a song for you. But that's what happens in Luke chapter 2. It's a song. And in verse 14, we have the song, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And not just by one angel, but by a vast multitude of angels. And it's interesting. We should note something about that. That's part of the angel's job. Did you know angels were actually created to praise God? One of the reasons that they were created. In Psalm 148, verses 1 to 2, we read this. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 6, we read this. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. Angels were created to praise God, to worship him. And the angels sing even today. This is not a unique occurrence. If you were to just peek at Revelation chapter 4, we see uh, lots of worship happening in chapter 4, and in chapter 5, and in chapter 7. We see the living creatures flying around the throne room singing, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. We see a multitude of angels singing in chapter 5, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. The angels continue to sing today. And what I want to focus in on is the song of the angels, the glory song we see in Luke chapter 2, verses 14. And we're going to look at the whole section leading up uh, to that. We'll be looking at verses 8 through 14. But before we get to verse 8, probably need to briefly describe what has happened prior to this point. In Luke chapter 2, Caesar Augustus has issued a decree that everyone needs to go back to their birth town, to their hometown, and register. It's a big, massive uh, census that takes place. And Joseph is um, living in uh, Nazareth. 
and he has to leave there and go to Bethlehem because that's where he's from. And he's married at this point. He's got to take along his wife, who we find out is with child. And they get there, and while they're there, she brings forth the son, the baby, wraps him in swaddling cloths, lays him in a manger because there's no room for them in the end. That's all that's taking place to this point. They've gone to Bethlehem. It's not their hometown. They're in a manger. The baby has been born. And so we pick up what's taking place here in, in verse, verse 8. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. So if you're taking notes and you sort of want to outline uh, today, I want to take note of the, the cowering of the shepherds. The cowering of the shepherds. We sang about them today, trembling in fear, cowering in fear. Fear is a proper response, I think, when you face a messenger from the Lord. Um, in the Old Testament, people were visited by not only angels, but by the Lord himself. Uh, many times we, we see the instance of the angel of the Lord appearing, and it's none other than, than the pre-incarnate uh, Jesus Christ. And just to give you a couple examples, we could be here all morning to look at many, but in Judges chapter 6, the, uh, you might remember the instance of, of Gideon. And the, the Israelites are being oppressed by the Midianites, and Gideon is chosen by the Lord to be the judge of that time that will free them from the oppression. And, and Gideon is a, a really brave man. He's, he's hiding out in a wine press, threshing wheat for fear of being caught. And this angel of the Lord appears to him and says, The Lord is with you, mighty man of valor. I can almost picture Gideon looking behind him, like, you talking to someone else? Mighty man of valor. And the angel basically tells him that he is going to be the one to free the Israelites from the oppression of the Midianites. But he's not going to do it alone, but the angel's going to be with him. And so Gideon says, that's great. I, I like that. That's a good I, I, idea. Let me, um, you know, let me prepare you something. Let me, uh, let me make you some food. And so he makes this, uh, this meal, uh, puts it on a, a rock. And the angel kind of instructs him how to do it. And the angel touches his staff upon it. And flames burst out of the rock and consume uh, everything. And the angel disappears in, verse, disappears in verse 21. So I'm picking up in verse 22 of Judges 6. Now Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. So Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. He's, he's scared. He just realizes who this was. This wasn't just, you know, your everyday. This was the angel of the Lord he had seen. But listen to verse 23. Then the Lord said to him, Peace be with you. Do not fear. You, you shall not die. But that's what Gideon was thinking. That's why the angel says that, right? He was thinking, I'm, I'm a dead man. I have, seen, I, have seen, I have seen God. In Judges chapter 13, you have Samson's parents. Uh, an angel of the Lord, a man of God, as he's described here, appears to Manoah's wife, tells him he's going to give birth to a son. That son's going to be set apart for a particular reason. Goes back and tells Manoah, hey, I was visited by this, this guy, this man of God. And Manoah says, well, let me pray and that he comes back because I want to hear the message. You know, let me hear it from my own 
ears. Maybe there's something lost in translation here. And so the angel comes back to them and they're able to meet together, discuss. And the same thing happens. The, the Manoah says, let me, you know, make you something to eat. And the angel says, no, you can't make me something to eat, but you can prepare it as a sacrifice to the Lord. And he puts it on uh, the rock in a similar sort of a thing happens in verse 20 of Judges chapter 13. It happened as the flame went up toward heaven from the altar. The angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar. And when Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell on their faces to the ground. And when the angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife, then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, we shall surely die because we've seen God. Honey, I'm sorry to tell you the bad news. We're dead. We've just seen God. I mean, already in the book of Luke, there have been some angelic visitations. If you're reading at the beginning of Luke and you come to chapter 2, you've already seen angels, haven't you? In fact, in chapter 1, an angel has appeared to Zacharias. In chapter 1, verse 11, an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing on the right side of the altar of incense. He's inside the temple. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. Why are they fearful? Well, I guess the one thing we think about naturally is that you're, you're someplace where there's no one and all of a sudden there's someone. <laughs> that would be fearful. But I think it goes beyond that. I want you to notice the, the words that we read in, chapter, uh, in Luke chapter 2, verse 9. Behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. The glory of the Lord shone around them. What is the glory of the Lord. I want to give you a few examples from the Old Testament of the glory of the Lord because even in the picture I have here, we sort of have a, a light, angelic sort of figure, at least how we picture angels, right, with the wings and all, and light coming down. I think it's probably even grander than we picture here. But in Exodus chapter 24, verse 17, God's presence descends upon Mount Sinai. He says this the sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. And so the children of Israel are looking upon this mountain and they see fire. They see flame. And it's described as the glory of the Lord. You might remember Moses is up there getting instructions on how to build the tabernacle. And so later down the road in Exodus chapter 40, the tabernacle has been built. And look what happens here in verses 34 and 35. Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud rested above it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So we definitely see this cloud theme happening, don't we? Right? The, the glory of the Lord. But, but it fills the temple uh, in, in a manner in which you, we couldn't even approach it. Man is not able even to enter the temple or the tabernacle. But then you see the temple. The temple of Solomon, when he completes the temple in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verses 1 to 3. This is what it says. When Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and his sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. And when all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his mercy endures forever. The glory of the Lord manifested itself in such a way as, as, as the priests 
and Moses could not even enter it. Think about the visions of the prophets in Isaiah chapter 6. We have an amazing description by Isaiah of the throne room of God. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. And so I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I mean, Isaiah felt like a dead man. The glory of the Lord manifested itself in, in fire, in flame, in in, in shaking, in smoke, and it brought him to fear. Think about the picture Ezekiel has in Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. His description is amazing here. Above the firmament, over their heads, was the likeness of a throne, in appearance like a sapphire stone. On the likeness of the throne was a likeness with the appearance of a man, high above it. Also, from the appearance of his waist and upward, I saw, as it were, the color of amber, with the appearance of fire all around within it. And from the appearance of his waist and downward, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire with brightness all around, like the appearance of a rainbow in a cloud on a rainy day. So was the appearance of the brightness all around it. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. So when I saw it, I fell on my face. Do you picture that when you picture the angel coming? Do you picture that when the glory of the Lord shone Around it, I know we have different descriptions in the New Testament. Paul meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus, it was a bright light, but he trembled in fear from it, did he not? John, when he sees Jesus in Revelation, fell down as though dead. There is something about the glory of the Lord that brings finite human beings to a proper place of trembling and fear. And I think that is part of what is happening here in essence, the angel's not coming alone. Because in all of these instances that I just read, you have a manifestation of, of God's presence. And when God manifests his presence, is something to behold. And so it's not just the angel, but God, God's presence is there. They came in light, they came in God's splendor, and the pre- very presence of God himself. Add to that, I think, one other thing is that the angels of the Old Testament, um, and they would have known the Old Testament here in the New Testament, would they not have? They, they would have had that. Did not always come with good news, did they? Many times they were herald, heralds of bad news, of impending judgment. In Genesis chapter 19, Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Verses 12 to 13, these angels appear. They go to Lot. The men said to Lot, have you anyone else here, son-in-law, your sons, your daughters, whomever you have in the city, take them out of this place. For we will destroy this place because the outcry against them has grown great before the face of the Lord. And the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Yeah, angels coming to mete out God's judgment. In, in the invasion of Jerusalem, when Hezekiah was King Sennacherib's invasion, the angel of the Lord goes out and, and, and does a, a massive killing. And it came to pass on a certain night that the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when people arose early in the morning, there were the corpses all 
dead. Can you imagine that? Even David himself, David had censored the, uh, took a census of the people um, against God's will. And so the, the prophet, the seer Gad comes to David and says, the Lord has to punish you, you disobeyed. And in 1 Chronicles 21, this is the choice he's given in verses 11 and 12. So Gad came to David and said to him, thus says the Lord, choose for yourself either three years of famine or three months to be defeated by your foes with the sword of your enemies overtaking you. Or else for three days, the sword of the Lord, the plague in the land with the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. Now consider what answer I should take back to him who sent me. That's quite a choice. Remember what David chose? He chose the angel of the Lord. He wanted to be in the hands of God because he knew he could call upon God's mercy, and he does. And the angel ceases to destroy. But put yourself in the shoes of these shepherds, right? You've got that manifestation of, of God's brilliance and splendor and light, but you also have your knowledge of that this is an angel. They're not always coming with good stuff here. There's a proper reason for fear. But that brings me to another point, and I want you to notice this. Not just the cowering of the shepherds, but I want you to notice the comfort of the angel. He says, the angel said to him in verse 10, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Did you know another of the jobs that the angels have, according to scripture, is to minister to us? In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, it says, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? Do not be afraid. Comforting words. Just the other day I was reading in Zechariah chapter 1 as I was already preparing this sermon and contemplating it. In Zechariah chapter 1, you have the angel of the Lord again talking to Zechariah. And the angel of the Lord, this is fascinating, um, is talking to the Lord. So Jesus is talking to God the Father. And he says this, O Lord of hosts, how long will you not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah against which you were angry these 70 years. Remember, they've been judged. They've been sent into captivity. And the angel, the Lord, is the one asking the Father, like, when, when are you going to favor Jerusalem? When are you going to stop showing your wrath uh, against them? And listen to what it says in verse 13 of chapter 1. And the Lord answered the angel who talked to me with good and comforting words. And what he begins to share with him is that he's not through. I'm returning to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, says the Lord of hosts. My cities shall again spread out through prosperity. The Lord will again comfort Zion. I will again choose Jerusalem. Good and comforting words. And in our narrative in, in Luke, we've already seen that happen as well. The angel that appeared to Zechariah in chapter 1 said, Do not be afraid. Your, wife, your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. Uh, Gabriel is the name of the angel. We're at least given this one's name, right? He also appears to Mary. And he says to her, do not be afraid. You found favor in God. An angel also appears to Joseph when he's trying to contemplate all that's going on. And the angel appears to him in a dream and says, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Good and comforting words. You can even take that all the way to the resurrection, can't you? I love the description of the resurrection in Matthew chapter 28, verses 2 to 5. Mary and the other Mary are on their way to the tomb. They want to anoint Jesus' body. And it says this, Behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, 
do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. Isn't that interesting? You've got the guards standing there, shaking with fear. They pass out. They're like dead men. But the comforting words come to the women. You, you're seeking Jesus. You don't need to be afraid. And instantly they're comforted. The comfort of the angels. Don't be afraid. And that leads us to the communication of the angel in verse 10. So he says, do not be afraid. Why? For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. I'm not bringing bad news. Uh, I'm not bringing judgment. I've got good news. I've got great joy. Not judgment, good news. And that's going to be to all people. How is it going to be good to all people? I think what the angel is heralding here, I think what he's announcing is a fulfillment of the prophecy given in Genesis chapter 12 to Abraham, right? And in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, we're given a list of things that are promised to Abraham. And in verse 3, uh, verses 2 and 3, this is what he says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. I think that is what the angel is talking about here. I think when he comes and says, don't be afraid. I bring you good tidings of great joy, which is for everyone. He's talking about Genesis chapter 12. God tells Abraham, someone's going to come from you. Someone's going to come from your seed, and he's going to bless the whole world. Who is that someone? It's Jesus. And this is what the angel is announcing. Finally, finally, I can bring the news we've been waiting for back in Genesis chapter 12. We're waiting to hear this. There's someone who's going to come who's going to be able to bless the whole world. Good news. And then he gives, us to us, gives the news to us in verse 11. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. It's interesting, isn't it? Here's the good news. A baby's been born. <laughs> yeah, okay, that happens all the time. Thanks for sharing. Glad you came down all this way to tell me that. It's born to you. But it's not just a baby, is he? A savior is what he says. A savior. Now, we're used to using that word savior. We sing about it. We say it all the time. But you know that's the only one of two places savior is used in the New Testament. Uh, the only other place is in John chapter 4, verse uh, 42. I have it for you. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Guess where this takes place? This is, this is, not, this is not Jewish people. This is not, this is not Israel proper. This is Samaria with a group of Samaritans. This is Jesus with a Samaritan woman at a well. This is the men of Sychar in that area. And after Jesus had talked to the woman, she went and shared everything. And they come and proclaim this amazing news. They say, you are the Christ, the Savior of the world. Interesting. How is he going to save the world? Well, the angel, an angel, has already given Joseph the answer. Joseph knows in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Eosus, the Lord is salvation. You'll call his name Jesus because he's going to save his people from what? Their sins. So something is revealed about this good news. I bring you good news. I bring you great joy. You need saving. You need a savior. There's bad news in the good news, isn't there? Because I bet you some people didn't think they needed saving. 
I have great news for you. Yeah, what is it? You can be saved. I didn't know I needed saving. That's our world today, isn't it? Don't know we need saving. But we do. We need a savior. And we need saving from sin. And that is the news this angel is coming to herald. It's not just a baby that's born, but a savior. He is Christ the Lord, the long-awaited Messiah. In John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, we're very familiar with this passage. But listen to what he says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So God loves the world. He sends Jesus into the world so that the world won't perish. Why is it going to perish? Well, the world has already been condemned. That's why Jesus isn't coming to condemn it. It's already under God's condemnation. He has condemned it. In Romans chapter 1, Paul shares that with us in verses 18 and 19. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them for God has shown it to them. The world is already condemned. Jesus doesn't need to come in and condemn it again. It's been condemned. God's wrath is coming to man. But no, Jesus has been sent to save the world. Jesus' mission, if you think about it, is to save the world from the wrath of his own father. That's what he's coming to do. Interesting. But there's a sign that accompanies this in verse 12. This will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. How will you know this Savior? How, you, how will you know the one who has come to do all of this? What's the distinguishing mark here? Is he in a palace, right? Is he coming on chariots in a, in a massive parade? No, nope. he's a baby. And he's been born in a feeding trough. That's the sign coming as humbly as possible that's the mark that separates jesus from any other he's the he's entering humanity in the most humble of ways god himself taking on human flesh that's enough right there that's what paul talks about in philippians the fact that he would leave all of that and just come and be part of this is an amazing act of humility but to go to the point of even coming as a baby could it not he have come as a man full grown yes he could could have because it's a baby. And not just a baby in like the, the, the grandest of palaces. He's born in a trough where animals eat. This is the sign. This is the sign, the angel says. This is how you will know the one has come to save the world from their sins. It's incredible. Incredible what he's talking about here. And so you have this amazing communication by the angels coming to them. And that what follows is this incredible celebration, the celebration of uh, the angels. And hopefully this helps us understand the reason for their glory song, because glory has been given. Glory has come to earth. This glory is going to save man from their sins. The glory is going to bring peace to a world that's hostile to God. That hasn't been here before. So let's look at what he says here. Verse 13, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of, of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, 
peace, goodwill toward men. Now you have um, a, a vast uh, a multitude of angels that appear with the one angel, and they come to sing their song. They come to give the glory song, glory to God in the highest. All glory goes to him. That's what we've come to do. But why are they singing this glory? And on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Peace, goodwill toward men. I think that phrase is often misunderstood, goodwill toward men. The word for goodwill that's used there is also used in Luke chapter 10. If you want to peek at it here, you can see the context of it. Luke chapter 10, verse 21. Jesus uses it. In that hour, it's Luke chapter 10, verse 21. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in the spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. For so it seemed good in your sight. That is the word there. In Luke chapter 3, verse 22, the verb form of the same word is used. During Jesus' baptism, and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him, and a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. Same root word there. And also in Luke chapter 12, verse 32, it is used as that verb form. Do not fear, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So Luke is using this word over and over again. Scripture uses this word over and over again. I'm showing you how it's used because I want you to see really um, the idea behind it. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. Paul uses it this way, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Predestined to adoption as sons. God has done that. Why? Because it's his good pleasure to do so. It's his sovereign good pleasure and his prerogative, his will. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. Same word. Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. In each of these verses, it's clear that it refers to God's sovereign good pleasure. It is not the good will of men. It's not that God saw something good in men. But it's according to his good will, according to his good pleasure, because he desires to do so. Why? He just does. He's God. It's his prerogative. He can do so. So the better rendering of this verse, if you were to go back and look at it again, would be peace toward men on whom God's sovereign pleasure rests. It is his pleasure to do so. Because the truth is, God is not peace with, at, at peace with the whole world, Right? On earth, peace, goodwill toward men. He's not at peace with all of mankind. Is he? But God has sent his peace offering. He's shown his goodwill. I've sent the peace offering. I've sent the one who can make peace between me and humanity. And so what God is saying is, what I want you to do is I want you to run underneath the shelter of my son. Because I'm a good God. I'm a good judge and I'm righteous and I'm going to do what good judges do and I'm going to judge sin. I have to do that to be righteous. 
So my wrath is coming, but I'm warning you about it. And I'm sending my son so that his atoning blood can cover you and protect you from my wrath. Run to him. He's the savior. That is what he is doing. But God is not at peace with the whole world because there are those who have chosen not to be at peace with him. In fact, Paul tells us in Romans 5, 1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. How do you have peace with God? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. But he offers his peace to all men. The offering is coming to all. This is why the angels sing. There is now a chance for peace. God is showing his mercy here. Peter says in 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count, count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God does not want people to die. He doesn't want them to perish, but he wants them to come to repentance. He wants a change to come over the hearts of men. And that change only happens through the Lord Jesus. It's the only way it comes. My family and I, we've been reading this Advent, it's a daily Advent devotional by Paul David Tripp, the one who does our marriage seminars that we've been uh, doing, come, come, come Let Us Adore Him. And I just wanted to read you a, a small snippet. It's, it's all been so amazingly good. In fact, uh, I, I read a, a whole devotional for, um, for our Resolved group the other night when we ended our party. This is a different section. He talks about the angels and their glory song. And this is what he said. The angels sang us a glory song. Not only because the events about which they sang were glorious, but also because the one who came is and was and will ever be the sum and definition of glory. The angels sang of glory because glory had come to earth to rescue us from the inglory of sin and to unleash the forgiving and transforming glory of his grace on all who would believe. The hymn of the angels and the hymns that have been written by God's people since shimmer with glory because the incarnation of Jesus is about a glorious savior coming to give glorious grace to people who have forsaken his glory for the temporarily satisfying shadow glories of the created world. That is what they're singing about. There is an opportunity for peace to be had with man. There's an opportunity for peace on earth. You know, I opened with this idea of change coming at Christmas time. It comes every year uh, to the whole world. It comes quickly. It comes earlier every year. (laughs) And then it disappears completely until the following year. But when the angels came, they heralded the coming of a permanent change, a change that would take place upon the whole world forever. And for the first time in human history, peace had truly come. That is what they're singing about. And they responded with praise. They respond with thanksgiving and glory to God. What is your response? Have you responded that way? Do you respond to the life-changing message of the angels in that way? Next week, Steve will pick up this passage and he'll show us how the shepherds responded. Let me pray. God in heaven, I thank you so much for this time in your word. I thank you for the opportunity we've had to walk through this amazing passage and, and see the message that you, you sent to, to herald the coming of your son. Lord, there's so much wrapped around that. I know we could talk about this for, for days.
and months. We're just limited in our time here today. But God, I do pray that the amount of time we've had, Lord, we've been able to see that Jesus didn't just come into this world so that we could sing these fun Christmas songs every year, so that we could put a tree in the house and decorate it with lights and tinsel, so that we could shop till our feet hurt, until we're broke, but that we could have peace with God, that we could have salvation from our sins. The angel says a Savior has been born. And Lord, it is you we worship. It's you we praise. And Lord, I do pray that when we come and gather, not just at Christmas time, but every Sunday and every time during the week, we, our minds are fixed upon you and our hearts are uh, overflowing with joy, that a song of praise would just uh, come out of us, Lord. Glory to God in the highest. Amen. You have made peace with men, and we are grateful. Oh, God, be glorified. We love you. We thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.